Matthew chapter 16 tonight, and then I want you to also find Daniel chapter 7. We're going to be looking at several different passages of Scripture tonight. Matthew 16 and Daniel 7. Tonight is where we make a transition. It is where we make a transition from primarily looking at passages that deal with the rapture of the church to now passages that are going to be talking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are two different events. You see, the rapture of the church is where Jesus comes for his church. And he never sets foot on the earth. Remember from 1 Thessalonians 4, we meet the Lord in the air. So the Lord actually never descends or sets foot on the earth at the rapture, okay? But in the second coming, Jesus isn't coming for his people. We are coming with him. And he is literally setting his foot or feet on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, the same place that he ascended from that we looked at in Acts chapter 1, where the angel says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus that you saw go up in the same way is going to come back in the same way. And so he's going to set foot on the Mount of Olives and he's going to establish his earthly 1,000-year reign on the earth. So, in a sense, there's a separation of seven years between the rapture and the second coming. The rapture, we have no idea when it's going to happen. Uh, and there's nothing that needs to happen before it happens on God's prophetic calendar. As, as Paul, we've seen, he thought it could happen in his lifetime. So it could happen in our lifetime as well. The second coming, though, is much different. The second coming literally has a timetable of when it's going to happen because it literally is the culmination of the seven-year tribulation that's going to start after the rapture of the church when we are in heaven. But being in heaven then, when the Lord comes back, we're going to be with him in that return. And we'll see that more and more as we uh, study the second coming of Christ. What I want us to see in this, especially tonight, is that as the coming one, he is portrayed in the Bible as the king who is coming. And yet, many times in our modern age, the term king doesn't have a positive ring to it or connotation to it. Uh, many times when people think of a king, especially an earthly king, they either think of a, of a distant tyrant or they think of a powerless figurehead. And yet Jesus is portrayed very dramatically and distinctively in the Word of God as the King, literally as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And what's so, so amazing about our Jesus is that he is the King who has all power and authority in his hands of the universe, and yet there is no one you and I will ever meet who is more loving, caring, compassionate, I mean, you and I wouldn't want anyone else to be our king than Jesus Christ. So what I want us to do very practically tonight is this. As we go through these passages looking at the, the glorious king, Jesus, who's coming back, I want us to ask ourselves the question, knowing that he's the king, 
that, that he's no longer the, the, the humble servant who came and, and allowed himself to be subjected to all that he did and, and allowed himself to be crucified on the cross. That's how he came the first time, you see. But he's not coming that way the next time. He's coming, the Bible says, in power and great glory. And, and I want us then to understand that because you and I, could, we could study all this tonight and go, well, that's nice, you know, our, our king, the king is coming. But if it doesn't, again, have any real practical application to our everyday Christian life, then we're losing something. We're missing a connection. And I want us to see tonight that remembering that Jesus Christ is the king of the universe and that he's my king, he's your king, he's our king as a church, should have a profound effect on my everyday life, on, on the way I look at life, my perspective, my mindset, the way I live life, my priorities, my values. Everything should, should change if I truly believe that Jesus Christ is the glorious coming king. With that said, turn with me, first of all, to Matthew 16 and look at verse 27. Jesus here says to his followers, for the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Keep your finger there. But I want us to go back for just a moment to Daniel 7. And the reason is, notice how Jesus refers to himself here. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's actually Jesus' favorite title for himself. When Jesus would refer to himself, more often than not in the Gospels, he referred to himself as the Son of Man. And yes, that has the, a meaning that, that he, he humbled himself. He became a man. He identifies with us as human beings. He went through everything like thirst and hunger and, and tiredness and all of that that you and I go through so that he could be a faithful and high priest, the book of Hebrews says. But the Son of Man has a way bigger meaning than that. And if you go back to Daniel chapter 7, this is where it's taken from. And this is why Jesus called himself the Son of Man. Look at verses 13 and 14 of the book of Daniel. I was watching in the night visions and with the clouds of the sky, by the way, clouds are always associated with the glory of God, one like a son of man was approaching. He went up to the Ancient of Days, who I believe is referring to God the Father, another name in the Bible for God the Father, and was escorted before him. And notice then what was given, the Son of Man who approached the Ancient of Days. To him was given ruling authority, honor, and sovereignty. All people's nations and language groups were serving him. They were looking into the future here, prophecy. They saw a time where the Son of Man was going to be served by all the peoples of the earth. His authority is eternal and will not pass away, and his kingdom that he is the king, the king of will not be destroyed. So the Son of Man is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the one who will establish an everlasting, eternal kingdom that will never ever end. So when Jesus says back in Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man is going to come, he's referring obviously to himself and to the exalted place that he has in the universe as the Son of Man. 
So go back then to Matthew, though, 16, 27. He says, for the Son of Man will come. The words will come speak about a divine appointment, a fixed necessity, what is sure to happen. Why? Because he's the Son of Man. And all authority and ruling power and sovereignty has been given to him. You see, again, the thing that should impact our everyday lives is because he's the king of kings, because he's the son of man, everything that he says he's going to do, he can do. Because he has the power and authority and ability and capability and all of that to be able to do it. Well, that should translate into our everyday lives. If he's my king... If he's my personal king watching over me, providing, protecting, all that, it should make a profound difference on the way I look at life and the way I live my life. Let me say this, and I don't want to get too much into this, but the world is being brought to its knees by a virus. And what is very troubling to me is that there are many Christians who are living in fear of this virus. And I just want to encourage you, if you truly believe that Jesus Christ is the king of the universe, you won't be afraid of anyone or anything. If you have a healthy fear of God and a respect and reverence for God and you know who God is and you know he is to you, then you don't need to fear anyone or anything else because he's the king. And all everything comes underneath of him. This, this virus or anything else that happens on earth hasn't taken God by surprise like all of a sudden, oh my God, goodness, I didn't see that coming. What am I going to do? You see. And the fact that when God says he's going to do something, it's a fixed necessity, it's something sure that's going to happen. My goodness then, how many promises can we bank on because he's the son of man. He's the king who's coming. And notice he says, with his angels in the glory of his father. What's that mean? It means he's clothed in the attire of the king of kings and lord of lords. He's coming in glory. And then at that time, he will reward each one according to what he has done. It's exactly what he says in the book of Revelation. He says, yes, look, I'm coming soon and my reward is with me to give to everyone what they have done, whether it's good or bad. In other words, it's a positive or negative connotation depending on where we fall. Jesus Christ, as the king, is going to come and set all the records straight. He's going to vindicate those who need to be vindicated. He's going to judge those who need to be judged, but he's going to set it all right one day, you see. And we live with that hope every day. Now, before we move on to the next passage we're going to look at tonight, though, I want you to see the context of this one verse, because it's only one verse that Jesus speaks about his second coming here, okay? The whole other context is about all these other things. So why does Jesus pop this, in a sense, one verse in the midst of all this other teaching? Because everything else that he either says before this verse or that happens after this verse is connected to this. Notice from verse 21 through verse 26 that Jesus is basically teaching that his desire is total commitment from those who follow him. He says, 
verse 24, if, if anyone wants to become my follower, he, he must be selfless. Take up his cross, die to self and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose it, say, what benefit is it if he gains the whole world but forfeits his life? And over and over again, as, as we're approaching this verse on the second coming, Jesus is basically demanding, I'm demanding total all in from you, my followers. And then he drops this truth about the second coming. Why? Because they're connected. See, Jesus is saying, I want you to be totally committed to me because when I come back, you'll find out it was all worth it. You see, my coming is going to make your commitment all worth it. If I wasn't coming, then I wouldn't be demanding you to be all in with me and in a sense give up your life to follow me. But I am because I'm telling you that what I'm going to bring about my eternal kingdom is going to be so worth you sacrificing everything in your life for that I'm going to base my call of commitment upon my followers to my coming and ruling and reigning. So that's important, you see. That, again, should affect our everyday lives. But then something happens to Jesus after that, and that's in verse or chapter 17, the transfiguration. And we've talked about this, where Jesus literally is transformed in front of three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they're given a glimpse of his glory. How, again, does that connect? Well, because Jesus is saying, I'm not going to be able to give you a full display of my glory because you'd be vaporized in your human body, your human form. But I'll give you a glimpse, sort of like he did with Moses. I'll, I'll go and let you see my back parts. I'll let you see a little bit of me, and that will be enough. Because <laughs> if you just see a glimpse of my glory, and you know, in a sense, it was just a little, that will be enough to sustain you to keep on committing your life totally to me because you then begin to understand who I really am. You see, that's really what this is all about, the transfiguration, his call to commitment, of total commitment to his disciples, and then this teaching on the second coming all revolves around who do we really believe Jesus is. And it even ties into Sunday's message about Jesus wanting us to know who, who do we serve? Who are we serving? Because his identity is really attached to everything that we say and do. Either I believe he is who he really is or I don't. And if I really believe he is the king of kings and lord of lords, he's the son of man, he's the one who's going to come and put down all earthly rule and set up his earthly kingdom and he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years and he's going to allow us to be a part of it, then why not just give up my whole life for him? For him, you see. And so that's why he says, in the midst of all this, I, the Son of Man, will come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each one according to what he has done. One more thing before we leave this and go to Matthew 24, and that is Jesus Christ promises us. It is something that is a divine appointment, a fixed necessity it is sure to happen that he will reward us for all that we sacrifice if you will for him and his kingdom 
He'll reward us. And I personally believe that the reward is more of a role and responsibility in his eternal kingdom. I think that's the main reward that we get. Based upon our faithfulness, our commitment, our devotion, our service down here, he's going to give us a great role and responsibility in his eternal kingdom. And that's something, again, that Jesus is saying to his followers, I want you to keep that in mind because I know there's going to come days where you go, is it really worth me selling out everything for Jesus Christ and being committed to him? Because remember something here, too. He's preparing his disciples for a rough road to come. They're going to see him in just a few days hanging on a cross. They're eventually all going to be martyred for their faith and give up their earthly lives for the cause of Jesus Christ. How, how can you come to such a commitment only when you really know who the one is that's calling you to that commitment, you see? And that's what Jesus is doing here. So then Matthew 24, if you'll go over there, a little bit longer passage of Scripture. And I want to begin in verse 26 of Matthew 24. Now again, unlike the rapture, which I believe is going to be a, an event where Jesus comes in the clouds, the trumpet sounds, we are caught up immediately to meet the Lord in the air. I don't believe that the people of the earth are going to know what's going on. I, I think it's going to be all of a sudden all these millions of Christians all over the world just disappear. I obviously don't want to be left behind, <laughs> but I would love, just love to be here for the evening news. <laughs> I, I just love to see what are they going to say about that, you know? Now, I'm not really serious, Lord, I, I you know. But I, I just, like the fly on the wall, you know. But the second coming is very different, and Jesus is teaching it. Unlike the rapture that is, in a sense, hidden and secretive and only involves his followers, the second coming is anything but hidden and secret. It is visible, unmistakable, Notice what he says in verse 26, and that's why I'm going to pick it up there. He says, so then if someone says to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out there. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe him. In other words, why? Because it's only going to happen at a certain place. Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. When I come back the second time, everybody in the world is going to see the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's why then he goes on to say that he compares his second coming to a lightning flash. He compares his second coming to a very visible, unmistakable, brilliant, and, and powerful strike of lightning, one that flashes from the east all the way to the west to make everything visible, to bring light, if you will, at the arrival of God's glorious presence, which is described here again in verse 27 as the coming of the Son of Man. Back to Daniel chapter 7. The one who's coming, who's setting up his kingdom and whose kingdom will never, ever end. And notice, it's so the coming of the Son of Man will be. 
Did you notice something? God's, God's writing this as if it's already happened because God can write that way. You note that in the Bible a lot of times. It's like things that haven't happened yet, God almost writes them as if they've already happened. Why? Because to God, they're going to happen. So it's, like, it's not like, oh man, I, I don't know whether I can pull this off or not. No. See, because God is who God is, even the things that he says is going to happen in the future, we can bank on because who's going to stop him? Who can prevent God from doing what God wants to do? And God certainly has the power and the authority and everything to be able to do everything. So it's as if as sure as if it's already happened. Then he says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures gather. Why that verse in the midst of this news about his second coming? Again, to contrast his second coming from his first coming in Bethlehem. You see, the first time Jesus came, he came as the servant who came to seek and save that which was lost, who came with grace to bring salvation to all mankind. But the second time Christ comes, he will be coming in judgment. And his coming will be accompanied by widespread devastation and death upon the earth. That's why then he moves into verse 29 where we begin to see cosmic signs are going to signal the second coming. Remember, the rapture was primarily characterized by sounds, not by sights. But because the second coming is going to be a worldwide event that everyone on earth is going to see, the second coming is primarily characterized by sights not by sounds. He begins to explain by saying in verse 29, immediately after the suffering of those days. So notice, first of all, let's look at the phrase, the suffering. And I want you to note the article, the. It's not just any time of suffering. Jesus is referring to the time that the Bible calls the tribulation or in the Old Testament, the time of Jacob's trouble. It is a time on earth of ultimate unparalleled anguish. It is described in the book of Revelation in, uh, in the trumpet judgments, the seal judgments, and the bowl judgments that are uh, illustrated for us from Revelation 6, uh, primarily through Revelation 17. And Jesus is saying, immediately after that time of suffering. So in other words, there's not going to be enter intervening time between the tribulation and the second coming. In fact, the second coming is going to be the culmination of the tribulation. We're going to learn more about this in the coming weeks. It's where Jesus comes back at what the book of Revelation describes as the battle of Armageddon. And it's not much of a battle. It's where Jesus comes back and the armies of the earth are surrounding Israel and Jerusalem in particular, and Jesus just basically destroys all the armies of the earth. and begins to set up his earthly kingdom. Notice something, though. 
Notice that also accompanying his second coming, the celestial lights of the universe is going to be dimmed to accentuate the glory of Jesus Christ. It says, immediately after the suffering of those days, the sun will be darkened, therefore the moon will not give its light, because obviously the moon only reflects the light of the sun, so if the sun's going out, the moon's going out too, and then the stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of heaven will literally be shaken. There will be an unparalleled disruption in the heavens that will remind those dwelling on the earth again who is in control let's go back to this virus for just a moment God is called the Lord of hosts that means anything and everything in the universe that he's created is at his disposal, including bacteria that are microscopic. And notice something, in this advanced world where man in his pride thinks, I don't need God, God says, fine, I'll bring the whole world to its knees through bacteria. In other words, God's like, you, you think you're so much stuff, right? You think you're so strong and that you don't need me and that you've got all the answers and all this. I'll show you. I'll use a microscopic bacteria to bring the world to its knees. It should be a reminder to us to humble ourselves before our God and to understand this is our God. The King who's coming in power and great glory, the one who can dim the celestial lights at his word, the one who can literally make the stars fall out of heaven, the one who can literally shake the heavens. By the way, if you turn to the book of Hebrews for just a moment, keep your finger there, I want you to notice this concept of shaking the heavens. The writer of Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews chapter 12. And this has a lot of practical application for us tonight as well in speaking about the second coming. God, through the writer of Hebrews, says in Hebrews 12, 26, then his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, I will once more shake not only the earth, but heaven too. Just what's being described in Matthew 24. Now this phrase once more indicates the removal of what is shaken, that is of created things, so that what is unshaken may remain. What God is simply saying is, there's coming a day what everything man-made is gone. The only thing that's going to last is what I've made. Because the Bible says whatever God's involved with, that's eternal. So that's why God encourages us to lay up treasures in heaven and invest in eternal things because that can't be shaken. That's what will last. That's what will remain. That's what will abide. That's what will continue throughout eternity. But everything that man makes, either to himself or for himself or that he erects in some way, gone. Gone. So we need to ask ourselves, what parts of my life will survive God's shaking? Because here's the thing. Even in our lives as Christians sometimes, 
God does a mini shaking. It's not this shaking that he's referring to here, accompanying his second coming, but every once in a while, God even will come into the lives of those he loves so much and shake it up a little bit just to try to not only get our attention, but to remind us of what are we really living for and what we should be really living for. Not to live for the temporal, physical, and material things and not to put all of our emphasis on those things, but to put our emphasis on the spiritual and material things that will survive the shaking of God. Back to Matthew 24. Then, verse 30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in or literally from heaven. What is the sign? The ultimate sign is the king in his great glory. And notice the reaction on earth. All the tribes, or literally peoples of the earth, will mourn. You know what that word literally means? It means to grieve by literally beating our chest. Think about it. I think two reasons that the earth is described as grieving or mourning at the second coming of Jesus. One, the realization that everything they ever lived for doesn't matter. And second, they're sort of angry that God is taking everything that they lived for away. Because see, when Jesus Christ comes back to earth, everything changes. Nothing will ever be the same again. Man has had his day. Now every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They will see the Son of Man arriving on the clouds of heaven. Clouds always connected to the glory of God with power and great glory. You see, when Jesus returns the second time, he will be seen by all the world as who he really is. Can you imagine it? I mean, you and I can't even, like, as his followers, wrap our minds totally around it. I mean, we, we believe in our hearts and our minds that he's glorious that there's no one or nothing else like him in the universe, but can you imagine when we see Jesus in all of his glory, what that's going to be like? And then verse 31, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet blast, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And by the way, the words gather here mean gathering them to him. I love that. Again, because he's the central rallying point. Going back to, he wants his people to be with him for all of eternity. I want to, before I go to my last passage tonight, I want to take you to a couple verses in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21 because I talked there in Matthew 24 about the cosmic signs and, and the, the lights of the universe going out as we know it and all of that. And 
I want to point out a couple verses that, again, I think will hopefully raise our view of Jesus Christ even a little bit higher than maybe even what it's been up to this point with the truth of these verses. Because when we talk about the glory of God, we talk about his majesty, his splendor, the visible manifestation of the perfections of God. That's what we talk about when we talk about his glory. It, it's his presence. And, and can I say on a very practical level, one day we're going to experience the presence of all of his glory. But how blessed is it that we, even in this form, this fragile, feeble, you know, decaying, decomposing form, that God allows us the blessing of being able, even at a place like the Oasis Church every week, to experience his glorious presence. And that even though maybe we can't physically see him, we can experience the glorious presence of God and we know because of our spiritual vision and because of our spiritual mind that his glorious presence is resting upon us and this place. How blessed is that? Well, let's talk about his light of glory. First of all, notice in verse 11 of Revelation 21, the Bible says the new Jerusalem, basically the capital city of eternity, the city possesses the glory of God because God is dwelling amongst his people. Its brilliance is like a precious jewel, like a stone of crystal clear jasper. But then I want you to notice verse 23. This is the one that really just stretches us. The city does not need the sun any longer or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God lights it up. And its lamp is the lamb. In other words, God literally, even when he creates the new heaven and the new earth, there's not going to be any need of light as you and I understand it or know it. All the celestial lights won't be necessary any longer. Literally, the light of eternity, the light of heaven, the light of the new Jerusalem is going to be the glory of God. That's the light. That's the lamp. That, that's how glorious Jesus Christ is, is that he literally can light up the universe with his glory. I mean, you know, days like today, you're, you're taking a walk and, and you feel the warmth of the sun and the light of the sun, and, you know, you and I as human beings, and we can't even look at the sun. It's so bright. And, and, and yet the glory of Jesus Christ would make that look like nothing. And that's why God's going to give us a glorified body so that we've got glorified eyeballs to be able to look at his glory and see his glory and behold his glory and take it all in. How great is that going to be one day? So with all of that, I want you to go back with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms and look at Psalm 24. And I want you to see Psalm 24 maybe in a way you never saw Psalm 24 before. And before we read Psalm 24 tonight, I want, you to, I want to set the context of Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is actually part of a trilogy of psalms. And one of those psalms we're very familiar with, Psalm 23. But actually, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, 
and Psalm 24 form a trilogy. And to the Jews, these psalms were recited on certain holy days throughout the year. I would like, so that you can remember it in this way, to share this sort of a literation outline of these three psalms. Psalm 22 depicts Jesus being crucified. The, again, the, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. So Psalm 22, I would call the Psalm of the Cross, okay? But then after that, you have Psalm 23, where Jesus is the Lord, our shepherd. If Psalm 22 depicts Jesus' past ministry, if you will, dying for our sins on the cross, then Psalm 23 pictures Jesus' present ministry as our shepherd. And Psalm 23, then, I would title the Psalm of the Crook, meaning the shepherd's crook or staff. So you've got the Psalm of the Cross, you have the Psalm of the Crook, Psalm 23, and then Psalm 24 is all about the coming glorious King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So it's the Psalm of the Crown. And notice a pattern here, one that Jesus had and one that Jesus tells us we're going to have as his followers. The Cross always precedes the crown. The cross always precedes the crown, which is why Jesus turned to his followers and said, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross and follow me. You have got to be willing to live a selfless, sacrificial life if you truly want to follow me because most of the time, what you want to do and what I want you to do are going to be in conflict. Because you're going to try to do your life this way, and I want you to do your life this way. He says, are you willing to abandon the way you want to do life and leading your own life, and will you follow me? Cross has to come, dying to self. But if we're willing to die to self, as Jesus said, oh, when I come back, you're going to have an eternal crown, eternal reward because the sufferings of this earth are not even going to be able to be worthy to the glory that we're going to experience one day. So Psalm 24, the psalm of the, the crown, I'd like to read it to you tonight. And if I had to title this psalm besides being the psalm of the crown, I would retitle it, title it The Return of the King because that's what this has all been about tonight. The Lord owns the earth and all it contains. Hmm. The world and all who live in it. For he set its foundation upon the seas and established it upon the ocean currents. Who is allowed to ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may go up to his holy dwelling place? The one whose deeds are blameless and whose motives are pure, who does not lie or make promises with no intention of keeping them. Such godly people are rewarded by the Lord and vindicated by God who delivers them. Such purity characterizes the people who seek his favor, Jacob's descendants who pray to him, Selah. Then notice verse 7. Look up, you gates. We sang about this. Rise up, you eternal do doors. Then the majestic king, 
the glorious king will enter. The king of glory. In fact, this phrase in the Net Bible, majestic king or the king of glory, it's the only time in the Bible this phrase is used in referring to Jesus Christ. It's the only time it's used, period. But in this case, obviously, it's referring to Jesus. Who is this majestic king? Verse 8. The Lord who is strong and mighty. The Lord who is mighty in battle. Look up, you gates. Rise up, you eternal doors. Then the majestic king will enter. Who is this majestic king? The Lord who commands armies, the Lord of hosts. He is the majestic king. Selah. Two things before I pray and close tonight. The word majestic in the Hebrew means glorious one. It is a Hebrew word that speaks about one whom we should give proper weight and value to. Again, it's all about who do we really believe Jesus is. Is he the glorious coming king? So every day we could live in light of the fact that he's the king. Because everything he says to us, we should give proper weight and value to. In fact, what he says to us should outrank what anybody else says to us. And what he offers to us should, again, outdo what anybody else offers to us. Because he should have that exalted place in our lives. One more thing. Remember John 14 where it depicts Jesus now going into heaven and preparing a place for us? Notice something interesting here. In verses especially 7 through 10, what you have depicted here is the people who believe that the glorious coming one is truly coming, they're actually making preparations to see the king, to be with the king. Jesus has preparations to be made. He's making those preparations. But we also have preparations to be made. If we truly believe that his kingdom is coming, and isn't that what he taught us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we truly believe the glorious, majestic king of kings is coming one day, our Lord Jesus, then shouldn't we be making preparations in our life to meet our king? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the assurances of your word. The Lord, in the midst of a lot of unsettledness and unsurety in the world today, a lot of things, Lord, just get people sideways. God, thank you for the foundation, the sure foundation that you provide for us because you're our king. You're the king of our lives. You're the king of this church. You're the king of, of our country. You're the king of the world. You're the king of the universe that you created. You can bring the universe to its knees in a second if it's your will, God. You can shut off the lights in heaven if you want to, and you will one day, God, and you'll light up the universe with your glory. Oh, God, that we would see you more in that way in our lives every day, that we would understand the glory, God, that you innately possess because 
You're you. There is none like you. There never will be anyone higher or greater or better than you, God. You're it. You are everything. And again, everything that we have, everything we are, everything we get to look forward to is all because of you and your wonderful, amazing grace that you have bestowed upon us, your people, simply by placing our personal faith in you as our Savior, God. What a God you are not only possessing all the power and authority of the universe, but being as loving and compassionate and merciful and forgiving as anyone could possibly be, God. We will never be loved by anyone like you, God. And yet, God, we will never be provided for and protected by anyone like you, God. You're our sun and our shield. You're our rock and our defense. And so, God, I pray tonight that all of us would walk out of this place tonight seeing you in your glory, God. Give us glimpses of your glory throughout the day through your Holy Spirit, through your word, through our worship of you, through the songs that we sing, through the verses that we meditate on and that we memorize, God. May we lift you up in our lives each and every day. And may we be making preparations to meet our king one day, either when you come to get us, Lord, or when we go in death to meet you, God. We're all going to meet you one day, our glorious coming king. God, thank you for giving us the ability to be able to see you in your glory one day. Bless your people. Favor us, God, with your glorious presence. Take us home with your blessing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.